And today's sponsor is Reconciled. Reconciled invoices your clients, pays your bills, and delivers clear and accurate financial reports every month automatically. Ready to streamline your financials and prepare your business for the next big step? Visit Reconciled.com today. Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast, where we introduce you to a world of small to medium business acquisitions and mergers. We interview business owners, industry leaders, authors, mentors, and other influencers with the sole intent to share with you what it looks like to buy or sell a business. Let's get rolling. And now a moment for our sponsors. I want to highly recommend you get Acquisition Aficionado Magazine. Every month, Acquisition Aficionado Magazine brings you tactics for business buying and selling you won't find anywhere else. Learn firsthand from industry leaders who share their success stories, featuring in-depth interviews and stories from leading figures in the business acquisition industry. This multi-platform mobile magazine speaks to acquisition entrepreneurs wherever they are in the journey. And I want you to visit acquisitionaficionado.com today. Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast. Today I'm here with Chelsea Mendel. She is the founder of Ascension Advisory, and we're going to talk about how real estate can play a role in the mergers and acquisition games, more specifically sell leasebacks. Thank you for being on the show today. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. I always start off with kind of the, uh, the origin story. Give us a little bit of your life history. My joke has always been, and I'm sure the listeners are finally getting sick of this thing, is you were born and then you ended up on a show about mergers and acquisition. Can you fill out the gap in between? How did you, how did you start developing yourself into this niche? Yeah. So I actually started in more traditional real estate, private equity. So I was an acquisitions analyst at Starwood Capital Group, mostly buying at the time. It was a lot of malls, distressed malls with value-add opportunities and multifamily deals. And so that's kind of my first entrance into real estate. It was really just pure play real estate, no credit angle to it. And then a couple of years in there, I was recruited to actually join a private equity firm in New York City called New Mountain Capital. And so this was a credit private equity firm. They had a private equity strategy, a credit strategy, a hedge fund at the time. And they were looking to launch a sale leaseback and net lease platform really getting into the real estate strategy through the broader kind of credit focus of sale leasebacks. And so I was the first employee hire there, was working for the portfolio manager, super exciting. I was really young. I was like 23 at the time. They were launching a new fund, but it was a new fund in that new strategy, but with the backing of this broader, mature, really stable private equity firm with a great reputation. And it was exciting to me because you kind of had the best of both worlds. It was a startup, entrepreneurial environment in terms of that fund but mature enough that you didn't have a lot of the the downside risks that you have as an actual startup company. So I joined that firm. I joined the fund. We raised about half a billion dollars in capital for a first-time fund, which was pretty awesome. And we just started buying deals, all sale leasebacks. I would say it was mostly industrial, mostly with other middle market private equity firms. So I was really getting used to and understanding and being able to underwrite like sponsored, levered credits, middle market companies. These weren't like publicly rated public companies. These were businesses that you really had to understand and kind of get your hands dirty to understand a balance sheet and the investment thesis, et cetera. And so I was there for a couple of years, again, focus on purely sale SPACs to the point where I said, this is really exciting, but I actually want to be on the other side of this opportunity. And so that's when I joined an advisory firm of real estate brokerage firm that was focused on sale SPACs. That firm was called Stream Capital Partners. I was there for a couple of years. This was my first opportunity as a broker, and nobody really understood why I was going from being on the investment side to brokerage, but it was exciting for me. The entrepreneurial angle was there. You really have like an unlimited, uncapped upside, and that was exciting. And so I joined that firm. I opened up a New York office, and I was there for about three years. I did about a billion dollars in sale leasebacks. And then after that, kind of had the same entrepreneurial itch and just wanted to go at it, really double down on myself and on the reputation that I built in the sale leasebacks space. And I left that firm and I started Ascension a couple months later. And so we're about a year and a half in and focused similarly on corporate real estate and sale leasebacks in pretty much the middle market and lower middle market space. So super abbreviated, but that's high level. Oh, cool. Real quick before we get too far into this. Explain what a sales leaseback is for anybody that may not know. Yeah, great place to start. So basically a sale leaseback 
is when a business or a private equity owner or sponsor of a business sells its company-owned real estate that we consider to be mission critical to the operations. And in exchange for getting that large cash proceeds up front, they enter into a long-term lease. And so you're basically going from being an owner to being a tenant, and you retain all the operational flexibility and control of that property and of your location through that lease agreement. But the benefit is that typically you have a higher and better use for your capital than being tied up in property. And most of the time, you're executing this transaction at a multiple where the valuation or the implied multiple is much higher than the EBITDA multiple of the business. So you're basically selling a non-core asset at a higher multiple than where the broader business would trade, which results in the business basically seeing some equity value creation. Yeah, I've noticed that you can actually get a little bit of a premium through a sales leaseback as opposed to just selling it on the open market, especially if it's on a high revenue business. If your business is making good money, that's more of a determining factor than necessarily what are the comps in the neighborhood, right? Um, They come into play, don't get me wrong, but I just noticed that we're getting a little bit better of a price on those. Definitely. I would say the sale lease back, it's two components. It's credit and it's real estate. The real estate really being secondary to the credit. So from an underwriting standpoint and from a methodology standpoint, we look at valuation by really looking at three factors. So the first and most important being the credit of that operating business. So we're understanding the financials, the sponsorship, the balance sheet, leverage profile, et cetera. And then second, most important, even before the real estate is why is this property mission critical to the operations of the company? So is the tenant super sticky? Can they not reproduce this location from a replacement cost standpoint? So they have tons of equipment here. Are they proximate to suppliers and customers? All these reasons that make this property really important to the business, that creates value over and above what the actual building is worth. And so, yeah, when you look at the sale lease back value compared to the just broad real estate market fair value, typically it's significantly higher and that spread can be really meaningful, especially when we talk about potential acquirers of these businesses. So I'm going to have you potentially correct one of the myths I might be portraying out there. (laughs) I've been telling people come to me and they ask about these and I refer off. One of the things I do is I kind of have this little campaign. I know a guy, I know a gal. And it's like, if you get stuck in an M&A deal, you can't find the financing or you're, you're stuck in it and you need an advisor. If you're willing and able to pay for that help, don't be stuck. Reach out to me. I've interviewed over 150 people. I probably know somebody. I know a guy or a gal that can help you out. And so I do get a lot of people asking for funding. And I ask if the first thing I always ask is they have real estate. And depending on the business, the only time I won't refer somebody over to a, a company like yours is if that real estate is absolutely critical to the business. Like one of the guys bought a golf course. I was like, I don't know if I would sell and lease back my golf course because the real estate is the business. Yeah. Right? I would, yeah, I would disagree. I would say those are the best sale lease back candidates because what you're saying to me, if that building is absolutely critical to the business, is you're saying you're never going to leave. So a 20-year lease is obviously long, but you're basically saying you can't ever leave. You really have no option. So if I'm an investor of sale leasebacks, I'm willing to pay more for that building than what I know the building is worth because I feel so confident in the certainty of that long-term lease and you renewing that lease forever because what you know alternative do you have if it's so important to the business? So from a business owner standpoint, typically they can get the same level of control and operational flexibility through a long-term lease than they can with ownership. And they're doing it at, again, accretive multiples, creating substantially more value than what the property is actually worth that they could then invest back into the business, with actually, which actually carries like an ROI associated with it. So I think as long as you're structuring the lease right through an advisor, you're setting up a long-term lease, it's an absolute triple net lease. So it basically looks and feels just like ownership does. I would say those are the best candidates when the property is so critical to the business. Okay. So what if the, like a lot of the people that I'm, that are listening to the show, they're acquisition entrepreneurs. A lot of them aren't operators coming from one industry looking to buy their business and stick with it for 30 years. They're true yeah. acquisition entrepreneurs. They're going to buy something, improve it for three to five years, maybe add things to it, bolt it on. And then most of the guys are operating at that small, medium business the SBA loan range, $5 million. Maybe for this show, people go up to 10 They're playing right under the radar of private equity. So depending on yeah. the industry, that radar goes you know, as low as $10 million in some industries, as low as 
25, 30 million and some as high as 50 million and others before private equity will even touch it. So these guys are, their goal is to buy it below the radar of private equity, clean it up, do what they need to do and sell it to private equity because it sells at a higher multiple. In yeah. that case, when you know you're going to sell the business in say five years, is a sales lease back going to hurt the sellability of the business or is it going to hurt the ability for you to help get the loan if the person just knows because the new buyer has to live to that lease too so i'm just curious how does that impact the long-term game of an acquisition entrepreneur somebody who's going to not flip businesses but go in and do what their sweet spot is right which is improve revenue to a certain point and then sell for a profit Yeah, no, it's a great question. I mean, that's probably the most important consideration when we're negotiating these lease agreements is what is change of control assignment? What does that look like? And I would say the opposite is true. Actually selling the real estate through a sale lease back before you sell the business is typically the better move, not only because you're bifurcating the cash flows into EBITDA and rent, again, at a higher multiple for that rent side of the equation, but because most sponsors, most private equity firms don't want to own real estate or they can't own real estate. A lot of them have a mandate that they can't own property or owning the property and paying for the real estate through that transaction doesn't get them to the return threshold that they need for the broader M&A deal. And so a lot of the time we're actually working with either business owners or sponsors right before they exit, taking care of the real estate for them in a sale lease back so that when they sell the business or selling it clean with a long-term lease attached to it, obviously the considerations that we have to take into account are making sure that we're structuring that lease to optimize the exit optionality for the next buyer. So we're setting rents at market, escalators at market. We're not trying to juice proceeds by pushing rents above market because then buyers are just going to ding your EBITDA. But we're also negotiating operational flexibility for the business. We're thinking about change of control provisions, making sure that they can sell the business without needing landlord consent and putting in flexible language as it relates to expansions, alterations, other things that affect the operations of the company. Okay. And then I'm thinking like, what is the other big concern is on these sales leads back is rental increases. Is it done off a percentage above of inflation? I know they're done and they're actually, they're contracted in. How do they, can that be structured in any such way? Or is there common ways that the, the lease is managed as far as the amount? Yeah. So typically, if this were like a year and a half ago, I would say market standard is 2% annual fixed escalators. Mm -hmm. Now, honestly, just given inflation and broader kind of macro volatility, that's really moved to, I would say, two and a half to even 3% in some markets. Mm -hmm. Obviously, in better markets, if you're in Los Angeles, like it could be more like four, four and a half percent. So it's not, it's not fair to say there's one number for the whole world, but really it is, I would say across the US, you're probably at somewhere between two to 3%. You can do deals where there's like an inflation-linked escalator where it's some percentage of CPI, but typically if you do that, there's a cap and a floor. So a lot of the European sale specs that we do are basically Mm -hmm. CPI for that country escalators with a cap of, say, 1% or a floor of, say, 1% and a cap of, like, 4%. So it kind of ranges depending on the country, but I would say in the U.S., you're typically 2 to 3% fixed. So that's a great segue to another question. Where can you do these deals? Because we do have listeners, and I'm connected to a pretty big network in Europe, and I've got a lot of people I know in Canada, Australia. So basically, if I picked a top five or four or five, it would be U.S., then Europe, then Canada probably, and then Australia. Got it. Um, yeah. So in terms of sale leasebacks, I would say... U.S., Canada, Mexico, so really across North America, and mm-hmm. then U.K. and Europe. I know okay. there is a sale back market in Australia. I think it's just something that we haven't tapped into yet. Um, but yeah, I would say North America and Europe, U.K. for us. Okay. I was just curious because like we're going to have, uh, as soon as I post this out there, I'll have people from different groups be like, hey, can they do that in Europe? And I always thought about it as a, there's this thing we call the deal pie or the, the structuring of how we're going to pay for the deal. I've always thought about it on the buy side, right? Like, okay. I've got X number of dollars down. I've convinced the owner that I can give him a bigger check within the first 90 days of operation. Then now I've got the sales lease back. I can buy it, secure the property, sales lease back, give him, pay him down or pay him off depending on the sales lease back. I have people that are trying to do back-to-back closes, like basically close the sales lease back at the same day they close the business. It's possible. There's just a little extra legwork to do, right? That's about half of our business, honestly. About 50% yeah. of our volume is simultaneous sale lease backs with M&A transactions. It's definitely become 
more popular in like the last year or two where acquisition financing on the debt, traditional debt markets has become more challenging. Mm -hmm. But when we talk to groups and for the first time they've heard of it and they've never heard of it before, it's like, like they can't believe that's like even a possibility. We've done so many deals in this space where I think until the closing day still, like our clients didn't trust that this was going to happen. And then once we get one in with that group, it's like they just want to continue buying and showing us opportunities to see if that could be a fit for the sale lease back to the acquisition financing. Awesome. So what are the criteria? Like what should somebody expect? I heard you say the viability of the business, the balance sheet and stuff. So I'm assuming clean financials. A lot of these small businesses, they just don't have clean financials. If somebody comes to you and they're bringing a deal, what is, because I've tried for full disclosure, everybody, you and I have been chatting for a while and I've been putting referrals over to you for a little bit. And a couple of them just, they didn't match because they were weird, like three or four tenants already in the building and that type of stuff. Yeah. So, so in terms of criteria, like for that one specifically, that was a multi-tenant deal. So really mm-hmm. that's a good segue into the criteria, which is single tenant. That has to be the first criteria because the strategy is really, again, a credit strategy. So if you're looking at five or six tenants for the sale lease back investor, they don't want to be underwriting five or six credits and balance sheets and financial statements. They want one tenant, again, who the property is mission critical to those operations. So if you have five tenants, you can't really say that or it's harder to make that work because that has to be true across five different situations. So we say single tenant in terms of the nature of the building, the occupancy, freestanding. We can do condo deals, but they're just more challenging and they come with a higher cost of capital. And that's really it from like the standpoint of the physical real estate in terms of the asset class. Again, it's any asset class so long as this is operationally critical to the business. So it could be restaurants, healthcare facilities, medical offices, industrial facilities, manufacturing, distribution centers, warehouses, anything where the business operates there. And it would be difficult for them to just pick up and leave or interruptive to them if they just had to close that down. So that's really a good way to think about the actual real estate or the asset type. In terms of the non-real estate kind of requirements or criteria, yes, we need to look at financials of the operating company. No, they don't need to be audited or even like management or CPA reviewed. A lot of the time we're getting QuickBooks files from these smaller business owners and that's totally fine. There will be more questions, but we can use QuickBooks, Excel file, PDF file, financial statements. They don't have to be anything super fancy. That's really it on the financial side. So I would say about three years of whatever those financials look like, P&Ls, balance sheets, et cetera. And then for a simultaneous M&A deal, we want to see what the pro forma cap stack looks like, pro forma balance sheet, what the sources and uses are for the deal. And that doesn't mean that A is good and B is bad. You could be putting in no equity and we could still find a way forward to make the sale lease back happen. We just need to understand what that all looks like, what the cap stack looks like and what the sale lease back is going to be vis-a-vis the, the broader cap stack. So that's really it on the operation side and on the real estate side. The last piece is really, this is a piece of real estate that's part of a broader footprint. We also want to understand like the site level contribution. So if this is something like car wash, we want to understand the four wall criteria or metrics as well. So we'll look at the unit level revenues, EBITDA, to make sure that from a health ratio standpoint, so rent to sales, and from a coverage standpoint, EBITDA to rent, We also feel good about that specific location, not just the broader credit of the consolidated platform. So what a lot of people don't understand is some of the big guys have been doing this for a long time. CVS pharmacies were all built off of this, right? Almost every single CVS pharmacy happens where they'll pick a location, they'll buy the location. And this is going back to my MBA days. So this is my knowledge is probably based around 2007. I may be doing something different now. (laughs) So if I'm doing something different and they're doing something different now and I'm misleading anybody, just correct me if you know the difference. But based off of what I remember, they bought the land, they built the CVS and they would sell lease back to recapitalize, basically get their capital bill the next one. And a lot of places like that, I know like quick trips are fairly common in, they're based out of Oklahoma. They're common in Oklahoma and Texas. They're big gas stations. They did that. I know I have friends who were private lenders me in the real estate space that would do a sales lease back, they would be the buyer of a quit trip or they'd build it for them. Basically the quit yeah, trip build to to suit financing is really more yeah. common with the CVS space. So yeah, it's either sale lease backs or build to suits. But what they figured out is owning real estate is a bad use of capital when you can invest your capital at higher ROIs into the operating company. And that's why they do this. You're not in the landlord game. You're not a real yeah. estate investor. So let the landlords be the real estate investors and you do what you're best at. 
Yeah. So like Quitrip was doing the thing where like if you had, I think it was like three and a half million dollars, you'd buy the site, build it out, and they would just uh, build it. They would uh, just sign a lease. Yeah. yeah. So, so this has been done on the big scale. I mean, that's an indicator. I always look for things. What are the private equity guys doing? What are the big guys doing that we should take a look at and figure out if we can make that happen down at our level? Because for two reasons. One is we're going to sell to them at some point. That's the end game, right? None of us are going to be in business forever. One of the reasons we're trying to get the word out about buying businesses and stuff like that is there's just too few of businesses that have succession plans and know what happens next. A lot of businesses out there we're going to run into a big problem in the economy because businesses are setting out there and we've got operators that are 60, 70 years old and they don't have a succession plan. We don't, as an acquisition entrepreneur, you're not that person. You're really looking at what's the long-term play here. I have a holding company of web stuff and stuff like that. I'll hold it until I get older bored. And at some point, like, but I know there's an exit there, so I got to run it that way. So inside of that, the sales leaseback is one of the things that we can, has been brought down from the big guys have been doing it for a long time, right? And then I didn't even know anything about it until I got into the space and somebody mentioned, hey, does anybody know about a sales leaseback? I was like, what is that? And when they said it, it's like, okay, I can make that happen. I know people that are, have connections to the family offices and REITs and stuff that buy these real estate. So I started reaching around trying to build a little bit of my team so I could help facilitate these for people who needed them. And it went okay. And then I kind of laid off of it because they were harder to close than what I would kind of initially expected. And I got distracted. And then I had a couple of people reach out to me again when I started this, I know a guy, that's how I found you. But other than that, it was not like a choice to go to you or somebody else because there was anything wrong there. It's just, this is all you do, right? It's and a when, very, when I, very niche space. You really need, you need to have an expert advisor, not only in real estate, but in sale leasebacks because of everything you said. You're, most of the groups we're looking at these deals with or that we're currently working on, they're looking to exit to private equity. They're looking to exit to somebody. So we can't right. be in a situation where we structure a deal and we screw up your exit because you have to get landlord consent to sell your company or something else that's just crazy and makes no sense. But someone structured it that way who didn't have that sale leaseback expertise to know that your exit flexibility and optionality is really the most important thing to this business. We've taken over so many deals from groups that were going elsewhere to even like the big one-stop shop real estate brokerage firms where they do a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of sale leasebacks, but not really, or with big public credit companies, not with middle market credit companies, not with private equity owned companies, not with SMBs that are going to sell to private equity. So really understanding the exit optionality for these businesses and structuring those leases, which are long-term, they're going to have to live with these for 15, 20 years. That's probably the most important thing that we do in these deals. So you really need to have an expert advisor who's in this space, in this lane, in this very small niche, because that's all we do. And thankfully, and I'm knocking on wood as we say this, but we haven't gotten anything wrong where a deal has come back to bite us years later because we structured a bad lease. So you opened my eyes to something because I've run into some, uh, I call them operators, business owners. Business owner to me is somebody who, or a good business owner to me is somebody who's ready to exit. There's somebody else running it. They've already done all everything. It's prepared to go. But an operator is somebody, he's still in the mix of things. And one of the things I, and a lot of times they're wearing four or five hats. They don't have the money to bring in the right team to make it a business owner situation where he's not just an operator. And I think that opened my eyes. What you're saying right now is this is a good exit strategy too. So if you're a business operator, you own a heat and air company or something out there, you've got a big manufacturing company, you're there every day, you need to replace your management, you need to bring people in. Like you're running good, you got good profit margins, but not enough to hire a team of three or four. This is a great opportunity to do a sales lease back. Now you got operating cash, bring in that team, bring in an advisor to help you build that team and prepare it to exit. I mean, I know too many situations over the last two or three years where like, look, you're just not really ready to sell unless you can find somebody who wants to be in this job every single day. You've got to sell to an operator. So if you're an operator in a business, one of the things you tie your hand, you handcuff yourself to is you're either going to be stuck there for an earnout afterwards while there's a huge transition, or you're going to have to find an operator that wants to buy it. Right, somebody can just step in and do your daily task. And when you ask them, like, why don't you spend a year or so bringing a team? And if you're offering, a lot of the manufacturing companies are operating at a five percent or less profit margin. It's lean. 
or maybe a little higher than that. But you start talking about it. I need to bring in a CEO and a top sales guy and an accountant because I do all the sales, all the leadership, and I do the books half the time. You start replacing three salaries and all of a sudden that five or 8% profit margin is tough. I didn't think about it until you just said that. I think this is a great opportunity. Like, look, you're sitting on a million and a half dollars or two millions or $3 million worth of real estate, maybe more depending on if you're in LA, that's the corner. <laughs> but you're sitting on enough capital in that real estate potentially to take some skin off the table, maybe even fund your retirement a little bit and still have enough money to bring in that operator, bring in that staff, bring in a, a company that's an exit advisor to help you prepare that, get it ready. And then now you've maximized, you got a little bit of money for now, and then you maximize your exit and you're selling something people really want. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's a ton of great uses, I think, for sale back proceeds. I think the thing is people just don't think of this as in the mainstream or in the SMB world, like they don't think of it as an obvious tool. They think of it still with like the view from like decades ago that like, oh, this is only for distressed businesses that need to like tap into liquidity. No, if it's you need to buy equipment, use a sale lease back proceeds to go fund equipment. That's ROI generating. Get another production line in there. Use it to professionalize your management team so you can prepare the business for an exit. Use it to retire your other generation above you of parents that want to get out of the business, take some trips off the table. There's all these different reasons. It's really just an inflow of cash for whatever you need or want the cash to be used for. There's nothing in our agreements that says you have to put the cash into the business or use it to pay down debt or do something else. This is really, if you're the business owner and the real estate owner, it's cash that you can use the cash for whatever you want. Yeah, there's a societal, society-based mindset that renters are low-income renters or are, are losers, right? It comes from the residential side of it. So everybody's like, well, I got to own my building, right? It's more business. It's smarter for me to own the business and I'm not paying rent. And I was like, no, rent's actually a deductible expense, right? <laughs> like you can write that off as opposed to, and I guess there's depreciation and other stuff on the real estate, but there's some real advantages of not owning. Totally. And a lot of the time too, like the sale leaseback candidates, the real estate that we're doing these transactions around, they're pretty tertiary located. They're really not appreciating the way if you took your sale leaseback real estate, did a sale leaseback, took the cash and bought sick home in Malibu. Sure. Yeah. Like poo poo the renters and hurrah the homeowners, but your asset's going to appreciate, but your manufacturing facility in the middle of nowhere, Iowa probably is not going to appreciate. So you're better off taking that rent expense tax deduction and hanging on to your property, thinking it's going to sell for multiples more than you paid for it now in a couple of years, because it's probably not. Right. So uh, let's walk through the process. What does somebody need to have ready to bring to you? What do you, re I, I bring somebody to you and say, Hey, I've got a guy over here. He's going to do a sales lease back. He's about to exit. He owns a real estate and he was considering renting it. Like a lot of these guys, they consider renting the property to the yeah. person who is buying the business themselves. Yeah. And while that works to some extent, I think it's better to do what you're doing there. And you actually get the, you get a lump sum of cash and you're no longer, most of these business owners are not property managers, right? Yeah, we've they, had some really funny stories actually about that situation that you're describing yeah. being a really bad outcome for the business. Because if you're, say you're a, food manufacturer, just for an mm -hmm. example, right? And you've built this business and family owned for generations. You then sell your business, but you retain the real estate, structure a lease with the new private equity acquirer of your business, Chelsea's Salsa, whatever it is. Now, Chelsea still owns your building. Chelsea thinks she's still in the business, even though Chelsea's out of the business. Now I'm walking around the property thinking I'm still involved. And it's just, it's awkward. One, we've had this situation where we've had to like remove, retell the landlord, like this is an absolutely triple net lease. You're not in the business anymore. You have to just like kind of back off a bit because they kind of still think that they're involved, even though they've sold the company. Retaining that real estate makes them feel like they're still up in your business. And it's been a situation where we've gotten involved, I think two times where we've had to remove that landlord, help them actually sell the property yeah. to a professional real estate investor because it just it wasn't working out with the new owners of the operating business. Cause you're a lot of these owners also like they do want a clean exit. They want to wash their hands of everything and not have to deal with the real estate or the business going forward. A lot of the time it's actually from the acquirers. They think, Oh, I can't own the real estate. So I need the business owner or the seller to hold on to the property because they don't know about a sale lease back. They don't know that they could bring in somebody else to buy the property. They just know that they can't own it. So that's where we're here to come in and say, look, 
your seller doesn't want to own the property either. Let us bring in a total third party professional real estate investor. This is what they do for a living. They're going to own your building. It's going to be absolutely triple net. You're going to make any spread also if there's spread between the seller's pricing expectations on the building and what we can generate in the sale lease back. And neither of you have to worry about the real estate going forward. And today's sponsor is Reconciled. Are you an entrepreneur or business owner thinking about your exit strategy? Or maybe you've just landed a business through acquisition and the books just aren't the way you need them to be. Let me tell you about Reconciled, your dedicated partner for industry-leading virtual bookkeeping and accounting services. Reconciled pairs you with skilled professionals who empower you to grow your business and prepare for success, whether that's your exit or taking that new acquisition to top performance. Imagine having high-level financial management without expanding your team. From bookkeeping to CFO services, services, tax advisory, and even fully outsourced accounting, Reconciled has got you covered. They help you make the best business decisions, keeping your end goal in mind. And the best part? Reconciled understands acquisitions as they have acquired three accounting firms in the past three years, and their founder, Michael Lee, mentors others in searching for acquisition, raising capital, or trying to aggressively scale. Reconcile invoices your clients, pays your bills, and delivers clear and accurate financial reports every month automatically. Ready to streamline your financials and prepare your business for the next big step? Visit Reconcile.com today and let them get your books in order. Reconciled, making bookkeeping a breeze. That's Reconcile.com. Yeah, I've got one from the, I don't remember if this was from back when I was playing on Clubhouse or if it was from, I host twice a month, I host a meetup for acquisition entrepreneurs where we get in and the goal is introduce ourselves to each other and kind of say where we're at in the game. And if we're stuck anywhere, like we help each other for about an hour and a half, move, like find resources, make referrals, move your game yeah. forward. I think it was on Clubhouse. We were chatting about sales leasebacks and one of the guys, oh, that's a horrible idea. I was like, why is that? From the buyer's perspective, this guy bought a business. It was a... They repaired semis of all weird things. The funny thing is we had just, one of, me and a business partner looked at something similar. So I was really interested in his story. But he bought it and he rented the land back from, and the facility back from the owner because the owner didn't want to sell him the real estate. And he kind of didn't want to be in the real estate game anyway. So he did a triple net lease, and which was set up wrong from what I understand because the owner selling the business was not a real estate person either. So the lease was kind of funky. But he needed to expand. He needed new bays. This thing was setting on five and a half acres. And a lot of it was just like yard, gravel yard, semi yeah. could go park out in this, maybe more like five and a half acres, but something, it was big. It was a big yard. So they'd park semis out and then they would bring them in to work on it. And he wanted to build two more bays on the building. And the previous owners like, well, you're not ready to expand yet where well, I'm not going to allow you to build a, like you're making a bad business decision. It was in the middle of this business, like this guy's business and saying, well, you can't, there's not enough business around town for to have a two base. <laughs> he brought his 40 years of bias into what the market used to be to the game and was stopping this guy from expanding what he'd bought as a business because he didn't think it was a great idea. And that happens, right? As if you're a buyer of the business and you're the business, you're buying the the seller wants to be your landlord. Think about that stuff. Is he going to want to play an active role in there when it comes time that you need to expand the building or add a, add yeah. another little office off to the side or do something on the land that you're running? It's important you have to be able to have that ability to expand. Yeah. The other thing, like a pretty relevant topic to what you're saying now is we're actually working on a deal where a business owner, so it's, sorry, a business is owned by a private equity firm. The private equity firm acquired the business from, you know, a founder. Now the founder, again, like you're saying, wanted to hold on to the real estate. So they structured a lease with the operating mm -hmm. company. It's a fair, it's a market lease. It's fine. So we looked at it and we said, okay, yeah, that lease is fine. We tried to push them to do a sale lease back to bring in a professional investor. We'd pay them the same amount that the seller wanted. They mm -hmm. just they didn't want to. They thought it'd be easier to just structure a lease with the seller. Now, this is a couple of years ago. Now, today they've come to us and they said, we need to expand we don't want to fund it. The landlord doesn't want to fund it. So now we're coming back to, it's a sizable industrial property. And they said, can we structure a transaction where you bring in a sale leaseback investor to buy the building and then also pre-commit to fund our expansion, which is about the same amount as what the building is worth. So say it's a $10 million sale leaseback, another $10 million for the expansion. That's a $20 million deal. This landlord, he doesn't want to fund your $10 million expansion, even if he's making a rate of return on it. He also probably doesn't have the $10 million to fund. He's not a professional investor. He sold his business. He's a great business owner, clearly, but he's not in the investment 
game of funding additional kind of deals and expansions as they come up. So now we're working on a deal where it's kind of like this tri-party arrangement where we're bringing in a new sale leaseback investor to buy the existing building from the landlord, structure a new lease with the operating company to really maximize it to justify the sale leaseback investor's price that they're paying. And they're committing to fund it 100% of the total cost and then structuring in a lease amendment to increase the rent for that yield on cost based on the total cost. They could have done this so much easier if we just did a sale lease back initially and then went to that investor and said, hey, we need to fund $10 million expansion. You know, okay, we'll do it at an 8% cap rate. We'll amend their lease and we'll increase the rent because that's what they do as being a professional investor. They're always looking to fund these expansions. It also helps them as the credit of the actual operating business grows because now they have more capacity on site, et cetera. So very relevant. Yeah. And the, the other one I heard was, and this is relevant to this too, business buyer, acquisition entrepreneur buys a business years ago. He bought it. The seller leased the land to him. Things had happened. I don't know what happened. The conversation, it sounds like the seller of the business really thought this was a safe pair of hands. This guy was going to be the operator for 20 or 30 years. He got an offer he couldn't refuse by private equity. It was a weird deal where private equity was funding a strategic purchase. So it was going to go to a kind of a competitor. And yeah. the landlord now, the guy who's he's not in the business and where he sold this business five, six, seven years ago, is trying to stop the transaction. He's not going to lease that facility to this new buyer because he doesn't want to sell them. He knows the competitor is going to get it at the end. And he's like, no, th those guys aren't getting my business. I sold it to you. Yeah. Like, it's a change of control issue. Like their change of control provision in the lease is not good because if it were good, it would say if you're selling all substantially all the equity or the assets of the company, you don't yeah. need your landlord's consent to do that. He told me about the lease they use. It sounded more like a residential lease than it was anything. It was like, it was just basically a one pager that said, we pay for X number of dollars a month. Rent can be increased by a certain percentage every, I think it was every three years even. And we're responsible for all maintenance and repairs. It was basically like this guy had it drawn up on a single sheet of paper. I use yeah. a longer one for my residential or rentals. It was, like it was six pages. Yeah. You spend the money now hire an advisor like us, hire mm -hmm. professional attorneys in real estate law, and you will not regret it 15 or 20 years from now. These are long agreements and people can be short-sighted, unfortunately. This was a referral. When I told you people, I got a guy in my little campaign. This yeah. guy reached out to me and said, you know an attorney that can help me straighten this out because I'm going to probably have to bring an attorney in. I was yeah. like, yeah, you're going to have to bring an attorney in. And theoretically, that if you did your paperwork right, that it wouldn't be an issue to begin with. Right. It wouldn't be an issue yeah. to deal with in the long term. But right now, you an attorney is the only thing that's going to solve this, right? Yeah, and they have the, no leverage. I mean, right. if the landlord doesn't want to approve it and he, I'm hopefully there's some reasonableness language in there and an attorney can get involved to get their hands dirty, but you don't want to be in that situation. You want to do right. it right the first time. Yeah. So I bring a deal to you. What's the timeline look like? What are we looking at? Like what kind of lead time do you need to, and what's so your lead time? Like what is the time frame? and when in the deal? Like I got an LOI. I know I want to close. And I think I'm going to need the money from the sales lease back to fund this transaction. Yeah. Uh, kind of give me the timeline and where you fit in there. When should you be introduced to the whole transaction? Well, sooner the better, always, mm -hmm. just regardless. I would say most of the time, the way the process really works is a sponsor or a searcher is looking at a business. They see that it has a real estate component. Pretty typically before LOI, they're sending us some high-level information on the building, address, square footage, acreage, et cetera some high-level financial information on the operating company, ideally three years of P&Ls, what their source and uses is going to look like. And then we'll come back to them usually within a day or two with our sale leaseback proposal. That'll include our valuation, lease terms, proceeds, timeline, who the likely buyer universe is, et cetera. And then from there, we're usually just tracking the deal to see if they actually end up getting it signed up, if they end up moving forward. And then process-wise, as soon as that acquirer has the business under exclusivity, that's when we would actually go out to our investors and start bringing in LOIs. And so from a timing standpoint, you can do that at any point, and, but which you'd like, obviously having typically the sale leaseback valuation and the lease terms, knowing what that looks like usually can make you a more competitive bidder. Maybe you can pay more because there's some spread from the real estate, or maybe you can offer a holistic package for the seller by being able to take into account the sale leaseback. So most of the time, groups are coming to us early, like pre-LOI because the sale leaseback can impact what they're able to bid. So that's the first point. The second point in terms of the actual transaction timeline, we've closed deals in as quick as 28 days. I would say that's very quick. We prefer to have something more like 60 days, 90 days would be great. 
it depends on the size of the deal. And it's sort of counterintuitive, but larger deals are actually easier to close than smaller deals because larger deals, if they're institutional, we could go to the REITs, the funds, family offices, professional real estate investors versus smaller deals. We're looking at private buyers, high net worth individuals, local people who just want to own property. And it's much more complicated to find them and then also to negotiate and close with them. So it depends on the timeline. It also depends on obviously what the acquirer's transaction timeline for the underlying business deal looks like. And we'll always work to, to fit into that. Awesome. Define smaller deal and bigger deal in brackets. <laughs> I would say if we're like sub 3 million, you're probably looking at private buyer, local buyer type deal. Above that, typically that's when the institutions will get involved. It depends on the location though. For some better locations, better real estate markets, maybe we can go smaller on institutions because they just, they have a preference for that market. Right. And that's in real estate value. Correct. Okay. Just making sure everybody knows that. <laughs> so the second question is, sometimes the real estate's worth more than, say, the seller's putting on it. You can get a premium through the sell yeah. back. What disclosures have to be done to the seller of the business if you're doing back-to-back close? Because I'm going to buy the business and then sell the real estate. Does this, the seller of the real estate, in the real estate, in my residential real estate world, we call it an ABC close, a back-to-back close. Yeah. Same thing here. Uh, Double escrow. Yeah. So you don't have to disclose anything to the seller. So the deals that we're doing, the seller thinks that the acquirer of the business is just buying the real estate. And obviously we're setting up that sale lease back to be just like UABBC to be back-to-back closing Mm -hmm. simultaneous with the acquisition of the operating company. The seller, the underlying seller, does not know about the sale leaseback. They obviously know that the real estate is being traded, but they think it's ultimately being acquired by the business acquirer who's then simultaneously selling it off. So they don't know about the spread in pricing. If the seller is selling the real estate to the acquirer of the business for $3 million, and then the acquirer of the business is selling it to the sale leaseback buyer at five, the acquirer of the business is taking that, what did I say? So $2 million spread. And nobody knows on either side. Does there need to be need to be any type of capital reserve, any type of like money sitting somewhere? There's a money paid out front beforehand. Well, you mentioned early, you got early that somebody can bring you on early on in the stage. You guys charge for that service? Is that something you do for free? Or how does that work? So everything that we do is 100% success based. So we're okay. compensated when we close a deal. So we don't charge for anything. Up front, there's no retainer, there's nothing like that. It's just a percentage of the total sale leaseback value, and that percentage will vary based on the size of the deal. Okay. And then the like the reserves, there's not like too bad you guys don't do anything in like Switzerland or something. She probably already knows. We do. We do. Yeah. I'll reach out to her. I know somebody, here's a scenario for you. I know somebody was buying a furniture manufacturer and showroom and big multi million dollar. I think yeah. the real estate was probably a million and a half to two million. It was a small deal on your scale for the real estate. Yeah. She was wanting to do a sales lease back. She had people trying to help her do it. And basically, I don't know if it's just Switzerland law or some, something came into the play where the seller had to be aware, the business seller had to be aware of it. And she knew that was going to cause a, a deal because that real estate, while it had an emotional attachment to the original seller. So they built the yeah. business on land that had been in the family for 150 years. They were selling it to her because they liked her. She didn't have an emotional attachment to the real estate itself. This family actually owned like one block of that town, <laughs> like once over 150 years. And they'd sold pieces off over time. But this is kind of one of the last pieces of the family legacy. And they just wanted that. There was an emotional tie to it. So yeah. she didn't want to have the sellers be aware that she needed that money to fund the, give them their check to buy the business. She was part of her acquisition strategy. And I don't know the deal I ever got. I won't say her name on here just because out of respect, I haven't asked her, but, and people in my network will know if I say Switzerland furniture and I say her name, they'll find right. her. So I'll reach out to her and see if she still got, if she still needs help with that. I mean, like in terms of disclosure, that may be a local nuance. Obviously we can look into it specifically, but typically there's no disclosure, but the thing is real estate sales are public. So if you wanted to go into, look into the records a couple months later, once a deed and everything is recorded and shows up in searches, a seller could, but most of the time they've sold their business by then. A couple months later, they don't care. They're not looking in to see, oh, did the acquirer make money above and beyond that price? We've never had that come up. And we've done so many of these simultaneous deals where it was very sensitive that the seller didn't find out. So that must be just like some local nuance or something unique to the deal. 
the one I know that successfully went through the real estate was actually more valuable than the business. Yeah, we've done a number of those deals. Yeah. That's like a lot of the time where the sponsor actually, we call it a sale lease back free role where they're not putting in any equity to acquire the business. It's because of the real estate value being more than the business value. They can create spread above and beyond what the seller is looking for on the real estate side and mm-hmm. then roll that spread into funding the acquisition of the operations. What, what did you call that? Something free roll? A sale lease back free roll. I'm going to use that as a title. We're going to like, you know, how to do a sales lease back free roll. Uh, yeah, I've literally <laughs> written an article called like the art of the sales lease back free roll. Uh, the art We're of the, coin the term here. We'll tag that as part of our title. The art of the sales back free roll. That's a good one. Because, you know, a lot of these guys teach this, like the, even the two in full disclosure, I've taken courses from multiple people, Roland Fraser, Jeremy Harbour. I've studied on the show and got materials from all kinds of people that I've interviewed. They just gave me their materials after I've interviewed them. Yeah. And all of them say, if you want to do a zero down, there's this deal pie. And one of them is sell the real estate, right? So it is a very viable solution. I'm glad I found you. And now we have a, yeah. a team that can actually help do that. So I expect to do a lot of business with my, I got a guy plan here, or I, I refer people to you and help them. That's one of the reasons I wanted to do the show. Like if I need to pre-screen people and kind of know what you're looking for. So I don't send things that waste your time. I'm a big thing on everybody's time is valuable. You're listening to my show. Then people out there listen to my show and you reach out to me. I'm going to kind of do a little, I, I don't want to refer to you somebody that's just going to waste your time. And I don't want to refer you to somebody if it's not a good relationship situation. So that's kind of where I stand on. Let's just make sure we can do our best. I can't control everything, but if I can make sure everybody's taken care of in this situation, then I, that's the kind of referrals I like to do. And if I make a few bucks on the back end, that's awesome, right? That's, Absolutely. That's, that's, we pay referral fees yeah. all the time. It's a big piece of our business, whether it's M&A firms, attorneys, yeah. lenders, even yeah. commercial bankers. We're deep in this space of middle market, lower middle market, SMB, and we want to reward everybody that's helping us get deals done. That's cool. The funny thing is I've got a, like I always joke and say, I have a real estate buying addiction, but I don't want to own the commercial. I like the residential side because of the appreciation. On the commercial side, I would be interested in like really high cash flow. But I never even thought about that. Like if I bought a marina or something like that that had a really high cash flow, I never thought about like doing a sales lease back on that and just keeping the cash flow and not actually happen to be the owner of the the land. Right. I don't know if you'd be interested if your guys are interested in like large marinas and it comes down to the same criteria. We need to understand who's the guarantor, what do the financials look like, what do the site level economics look like. But yeah, we're actually looking at a marina deal right now. Oh, cool. So there's some high cash flow things like you know, I always tell people, ah, I'm not interested in commercial real estate. And I guess kind of a lie. Marinas, high-end RV parks, not low-end ones, but high-end RV parks for tiny home communities, things where there's yeah. kind of luxury. Some of these RV parks actually have luxury, what they call condo units on the outside where it's like they're fenced in and stuff. I don't know if I even told you this. This The studio I'm in right now is mobile. So oh, really? Right, no, this, I didn't know this is a portable studio. It's actually made wow. out of a Connex shipping container. So it's wow. only 10 foot by 10 foot. And our main house now, we sold our primary house in five acres in Oklahoma last year. Our main house now is a 320 square foot tiny home that we can pick up and take anywhere we want to go. So we wow. kind of, we're in that, that nomad lifestyle where we can pack up and go wherever we want in the world. So what we get to experience when we find a location until we find land to buy, we park at some of these RV parks and stuff. And some of them are high end, nice, like, there's only probably 20 units, 30 units in the one I'm in now. And I got redwood trees in my front yard. The owners are really cool. It's really laid back. Totally different life from the life I live here in New York City. <laughs> I it's, also am in like 300 feet or so. No, I'm kidding. The funny thing is like you're in 300, jokingly, but you're in 500, 1,000, 1,500 square feet or whatever the number is. And it's thousands per month. I paid cash for the tiny house. I paid cash for my office. I think yeah. our living expense is insanely cheap. The lot rents for decent places here in California are under 1500 maybe 1800 Some of the more popular areas where there's like you're closer to town. And ours is significantly less than this, but it's really hard to get into this one. You have to, you got to catch a spot open and you have to like apply and like talk to the owners and stuff. It's a different situation because they're really looking. It used to be a really rough place, actually. They cleaned it up. So they're really careful who they let back in. Hmm. So let's go back to... How do people get a hold of you? I kind of want everybody to like work with me because we, we got a thing going. I, I think I'll just hang up my acquisitions and mergers hat and just go find deals for you. I like the real estate side. I think this is a brilliant way to do deals. Here's a good one before we wrap up. If somebody's yeah. out there looking for deals to do, what's a good way to indicate that, hey, this could be a decent sales lease back? Not just that they own real estate, but are there any other qualifying factors that 
you would look at it and go, hey, if you're out there looking and you want to do a zero down or low down or save your down payment for operating expenses and growth, here's kind of what you need to look for businesses that own real estate. I mean, honestly, it's really just like own real estate. And obviously the financials have to be there. It doesn't have Mm -hmm. to be a huge company. It just, it depends on the deal. So it's hard to say because Mm -hmm. if it's a much smaller deal, the cash flows could be much smaller, but your coverage is still there. So I would say, send us everything. We'll give you quick feedback on everything. I mean, everybody that's reached out through Twitter, I think for me has gotten a response within 48 hours. So we're super responsive. If it's not a fit, we'll tell you quickly. We won't waste your time. We won't waste hours. But if it is a fit, it's pretty straightforward. The PLs that we need, the pro forma sources and uses, and then whatever you have on the real estate. But we have our own real estate database we can dig in as well. Cool. So I always like to ask this real quick. If somebody could only remember two or three things from today's show, what would you have them to remember about sales leasebacks and about you in general? Yeah. I mean, real estate included, look at that as an opportunity for sale leasebacks. I say that all the time because I know in the M&A space, that's it's a buzzword. It's a key word in a lot of these opportunities that groups are looking at. And a lot of acquirers are just shying away from those opportunities because they don't have a solution for the real estate. Let us be your solution for the real estate. And in terms of reaching out, you have my contact information. Again, we'll always give you quick feedback. We'll be very clear about the information that we need to see, and we'll tell you if it could be a fit or not. Awesome, awesome. And to wrap this up, what's one thing, you said you live in New York. So what's one thing about New York City that people don't know? Ooh, that's a good question. I've always wanted uh, to watch the ball drop, but I don't like big cities. I worked in San Francisco, and I don't, for a long time there, not a long time, a couple of years, I don't see the appeal of it. The whole town smells like pee. There's violence and crime everywhere. My wife goes down there to for dinner and stuff with her sister. And like, you got to beg me to go. I, I won't go down there unless I have to. But yeah. New York- We have the best food. I think, like, I just got off a couple-week trip in Europe, and, like, mm-hmm. I loved it. Everything about Italy, the food is amazing, and Greece. Mm-hmm. But, like, we really have the better, like, cuisines of those countries here in New York City. Cool. Well, I appreciate you being on the show today. I look forward to doing a lot of work with you and sending you people. And I think this is an awesome show. I think we did a great job. I think people learned a lot from this one. Yeah. Well, thank you. It was great to be here. And yes, I am confident, 100% confident that we're going to find ways to work together. Awesome. We'll call that a show. Hang out for a few seconds. Hey, it's your host, Ronald Skelton. I want to thank you personally for watching the show today and invite you to call our new hotline, 918-641-4150. That's 918-641-4150. Call us and tell us about our show. Ask questions, uh, suggest a guest, or even tell me about a business you have for sale and we'll reach back out to you. Again, that number is 918-641-4150. Call our hotline and leave us some information. Thank you. I want to announce our new channel partners, the ITX Marketplace. Since 1998, ITX has created $5 billion in value by selling more than 225 IT businesses in 20 countries. ITX works exclusively with IT-enabled businesses generating between $5 million and $30 million who are ready to be sold and M&A decision makers who are ready to buy. For over 25 years, ITX has developed industry knowledge that helps determine whether a seller is a good fit for their buyers before making the match. ITX Mergers and Acquisition Marketplace, we have partnered with, has a proprietary database of 50,000-plus global buyers seeking IT service firms, managed service providers, Microsoft service providers, software-as-a-service platforms, and channel partners with Microsoft, Oracle, ServiceNow, and and, and the Salesforce space. If you have an IT-enabled business, you're ready to sell, I want you to visit the IT exchangenet.com slash marketplace how to exit that link will be in the show notes visit them now